Amen. I love hearing Noah and the praise team and the orchestra and the choir sing. We are blessed to have these leaders, but you know, I also love hearing you sing. And what a blessing it is, even as I'm on that front row, that I can hear God's people singing. I think that pleases our Father in heaven to hear his children singing unto him. Now, I I know not all of us have a great voice, but every one of us has a voice, and let's, let's use that. Thank you for how you do use your voice to worship and praise the Lord. We have a pretty big question today. We, as we think about Genesis 1, we see how we got here. God put us here on earth. We get a good chronological ordering of day 1 through 6. And then when you move into Genesis chapter 2, we see why we're here. We're made to relate to God, to love Him, to obey Him, to enjoy the greatest good that there is, and then to relate to one another, to love our neighbor as ourself, as God intended for us in chapter 2, to focus on that sixth day of creation, day one, building up to humanity, and then day two, building uh, Genesis 2, building out from humanity. Now, as... We move on in Genesis. Uh, If chapter 3 wasn't here, we would wonder what went wrong. But because we have chapter 3, we know. We see what happened. We see uh, what went wrong and why there are problems and issues and suffering and difficulty. Since God is great and the greatest good and what he created was very good, Something obviously went wrong, and that brings us to the problem of evil. The problem of evil has stretched theologians and scholars and all of us over the years to try to understand it in the context of our good God and what he made as very good. I I like what Brian Osborne and Bodie Hodge said in their book, Quick Answers to Tough Questions, about this issue of evil. They said God made a very good, perfect creation. So what happened? Man wrecked this world through sin. And one shouldn't blame the manufacturer for the perfectly good car the driver wrecked. It's a pretty bad day when you purchase that new vehicle and drive it off the lot and wreck it. Some of you've done something similar to that and it's a bad day. Well, what's even worse is God, who is a great God, who made a very good creation, put the man and the woman in the garden to enjoy it, to live freely, and said, but don't eat from this one tree. And then once they wrecked, once they fell, it obviously had a tremendous impact on everything around them immediately and long term. So maybe we move to another question that oftentimes arises as we keep getting closer to the text. Why did God create people if if he knew they would sin? We believe God's sovereign. He not only is in control of all things, he knows all things. And so when he put man and woman on earth, when he created humanity, he knew they would sin. So why in the world would he still allow them to sin knowing what was to come? And part of that does go back to choice, doesn't it? That if there was no choice involved, there would not be love and obedience involved. God did not make us as robots. Norm Geisler, another really good book, 
on apologetics called, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Listen to what he said about this. If God were to do away with evil, then he would have to do away with free choice. And if he did away with our free choice, we would no longer have the ability to love or do good. This would no longer be a moral world. But I would take you even a step further. God viewed sharing himself as the greater good. Even though there would be human responsibility, there's clear divine sovereignty in the very fact that God made us because he wanted to share himself the greatest good And he did so as he created the world. A new creature, though, in chapter 3 enters the picture. Not necessarily the serpent. He's already been created. But the one who will influence and lead the serpent in this chapter enters in Satan, the devil himself. So let's look again in Genesis 3 and verse 1 and Think of these first few verses. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, what is happening is the deception of Eve that we read about in the New Testament. And now we're actually seeing it play out in the Old Testament. This historical account of when sin entered into the world. This serpent because he was already being influenced and filled by the enemy, the devil. He is more crafty than any other beast that has been created, any other beast that's among them at this moment, because that's the nature of the enemy. Once he rebelled against God, Satan himself, he began an all-out assault against the things of God. Where did this devil come from? We, we don't have his creation in these first couple of chapters. But as we take the whole picture of scripture, there are those who will look at passages like Ezekiel 28. Uh, you can go back and look at that. Uh, there's another text in Isaiah 14 and they point back and, and, and they say, you see they're describing what happened when God created the angels. And, and Satan himself, Lucifer, he was... One of the chief angels, probably even leading the worship of God among the heavenly host. And so he's a created being meant to serve God and to bring glory to God, to worship God, along with all the other angels that God created. And of course, at some point, he became jealous of the glory of God and the power of God and wanted to exalt his throne above God's throne. And no, no doubt, even after creation, this very good week, that simmering within uh, this evil one, this, this created angel who would rebel against God. We may even ask the question, where, when did he fall? If he wanted to ascend his throne above God's throne and God had to cast him out of heaven and he lost his place and his position, then when, when did he fall? And Jonathan Sarfati in his commentary, the Genesis account, said, but the fall of Satan and the demons was clearly not during the very good creation week. It must have been sometime after that, but in time to be able to instigate the fall of mankind. So again, we're seeing the events 
Since God created time, we're seeing all the events began to fall into place of what's, what's happened here. Why was there evil in this very good place? And we see that the devil himself is pure evil because of his rebellion against God. Sometimes people will even ask me, is it okay to hate the devil? Because we always say, well, you know, you shouldn't hate anybody. Well, I'm going to give you permission today to hate the devil. He is pure evil, nothing redeemable. We've seen the future. There's no repentance in his future. We know that he is bent on defeating our God. And in his warped perspective, he somehow thinks it's possible, but he in no way compares to the power and the glory of God. He will never even have an opportunity. He'll never have the chance because he is a created being so inferior to our great and awesome and all-powerful God. So what is he doing? He's trying to hurt the creator by attacking his creation, especially his, the apex of his creation, humanity. And he'll do all he can to steal, kill, and destroy. He wanted to steal what Adam and Eve had in the garden. He wanted to destroy their lives. He wanted to uh, take away any good that was there, knowing that that would hurt the heart of God and that it would bring more evil here on earth. So again, pure evil. Look, look at how he works. Did you see that with Eve first up? Did God actually say this, the serpent being used by the devil, the devil speaks through this serpent. Did God actually say he is bringing doubt to the word of God? It, it amazes me when I look back over the centuries of time, the millennia really, and I see the devil using those same tactics. There's nothing new under the sun. He's, he resorts back to the same tactics of making us doubt the word of God. Did God actually say, and if God did say that, is that because God knew that you might get something good out of this and, and not only impugning the word of God, but actually impugning the character of God? Because the word of God is tied to the character of God. If God is true, his word is true. What he said is true. Did God actually say, and our students today are wrestling with those questions. They'll, they'll have day after day of hearing that from media, from teachers, from the world. It is, it, did, did God really say this? Doubting the very words of God and trying to make decisions as to whether I'm going to believe the word of God by faith or am I going to believe my feelings and those outside ideas that somehow that might be better than God's. I was with the students on Wednesday night and I, I sometimes feel more comfortable with the students than I do with adults. I don't know what that means. But sometimes I'll ask them questions that maybe I'm not putting out to everybody else. And so instead of hearing me say, how many of you are reading your Bible every day? You know, I might not ask all the adults. Maybe, maybe I should. But I actually was asking them how many were reading their Bibles through the Bible reading plan at Lawndale. So they had an out. They, they could have been reading their Bibles. It's not the plan that we had put out. I said, how many are using the Lawndale reading plan? And I would guess, I, I, I think probably over half the students over a hundred students in that room, over, uh, over half of them raised their hand that they're reading the church Bible reading plan. Now, that's a chapter a day, five days a week. What, what a blessing that parents are raising their kids to read their Bibles. 
What a blessing that we have a student pastor who, uh, in Zach, who's encouraging and pushing and prodding our students to say, read your Bibles. Because the Bible is the Word of God. It's living. It's active. When we read it, God does His good work in us. He opens our eyes. He brings uh, newness of life through His Word. We preach the Word. We, we want to read it regularly so God will do His good work in us. And, and so here the devil hits really one of the critical areas of life. Did God actually say, making Eve doubt God's very Word? And then, of course, the devil goes on and he just flat out denies. You know, in verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. I mean, Eve's nailing it. Most think that Adam, probably as the leader born, uh, created first, had shared with her what God had told him. And, of course, she says, Neither shall you touch it. I don't want to make too big of a deal out of that. I'd probably say to my kids, Don't. Don't eat that. I don't even want you to touch it, you know. So, so maybe there's not a lot there, but if anything, maybe it's already trying to get to a place that maybe God's not as kind and good as we think he is. You know, he's harsh and legalistic. So maybe she's already starting to get some of that herself. But verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. And you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw uh, that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Now, in beginning of that verse, uh, verse 4, the serpent just flat out contradicted God's word. You will not surely die. And I think somehow we allow the enemy to come alongside of it. Nothing bad is going to happen to you. No, it's your business. Don't worry about it. You will not die. There will, you will get through this one. It will not affect you. I, I think somehow we tend to do that. So when you look at how he works, he's making her doubt God's word. Then he's bringing her to a place of denying God's word so that she will eventually get to a place of disobeying God's word. But now, notice what that process looked like. She saw it was good for food, a delight to the eyes, desired to make one wise. Some will see this grid through like First John chapter 2, all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, those three things. You can go back and look at Jesus' temptations, those three, in Matthew 4, 1 through 11, and see somewhat of, uh, of similarity to these three main areas. Sometimes when, when my wife is teaching women about uh, even what was happening here in Genesis 3, she'll label these three points, uh, the practical stuff, it was good for food, it was precious, it was a delight to the eyes, it was valuable to her, and, and it was prideful, she, it was desired to make one wise. She wanted to be the smartest one in the room here. And so I think that crosses over for men as well. But you see these categories, ways that he, he led her in to this temptation. Now, temptation itself is not sin, but at some point, temptation turns to sin. If you see the fruit, not told what kind of fruit it is, and therefore, we're, we're just saying when you see the sin, when you know that it is a sin, and you start being drawn to it, that's not a sin in of itself. 
But the longer you entertain that idea, the deeper you go and the harder it is to turn back from that temptation. At some point, that temptation turns to sin. The temptation is not sin, but if you stay there long enough, you will get to sin. Satan's clever. He's deceptive. He's making a case for why the woman should rebel and disobey God. Now, from creation, how long before all this is happening, she, she took the fruit and she ate it. How long was that from the creation? Well, let me go back to Joseph Sarfati and what he says. Their fall must have occurred a very short time, perhaps three to four weeks at most after creation week. It's a lot happening in a very short period of time here. So doubting God's word to denying God's word, now to disobeying God's word. And do you see what happened after she ate in verse 6? And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Sometimes as we men are reading through this, we say, I, I, could, I, I, I could tell you whose fault it was all along. It had to be the woman's fault, right? But when you, begin, you continue reading through this in its context, you see, no, it's more of Adam's fault than it was the woman's fault. He was meant to be a protector. And he ended up being the problem. He was to be a leader, and instead he became a follower. So sin in of itself is... Lawlessness. We get that in 1 John 3, 4. Sin is lawlessness. It's rebellion against the commands of God. It's doing what is contrary to what we know God would want us to do. It's displeasing God. Who's to blame for this? Well, Adam is and Eve is and all of us because all have sinned. But we go back to this original sin of Adam and we say that God had put him in leadership and instead of leading, he sat passively by. One of the great sins of men today, just sitting passively by, watching the enemy attack their families, lead their families astray, destroy their marriages, whatever else it may be, and just somehow thinking that it's okay just to sit back and not take initiative and not take responsibility for the health and the direction of the family. When you read in Romans chapter 5, Paul makes it clear as he looks back. It's interesting. Sometimes we take these biblical ideas from Genesis and we say, well, that was a long time ago. It doesn't really apply. And then we look up and we keep moving through the law and we say, okay, well, God gave this to Moses too later on and it, it affirms that. And then we go on reading in the prophets. And we say, okay, well, that affirms Genesis. Then we get up to Jesus and we see that affirms Jesus. Then we read the letters and it's like God has one consistent message through this. And sometimes people even say, well, I'm still struggling with whether or not Adam and Eve were real persons. But the New Testament writers, a couple of thousand years after it happened, had no question as to whether Adam and Eve were real people and that this was a historical account. And in Romans 5 verse 12, Paul wrote, Therefore, just as sin came in the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam did represent all of us. So we're all responsible in that sense that we were all represented by Adam. And if somehow any of us would say, well, you know, if I was back there, I wouldn't have given in like Adam did. Well, Adam was the best of us at that point in creation, right? 
He, he had known sin yet, and he still chose sin. And so all of us, God, God knew that would happen as sin was passed upon all people, and we would all become guilty. We're sinners by nature because sin passed upon all people, and all of us are responsible, and we prove it every day. It's not like, well, wait a minute, I'm guilty of sin? Yes, because you sin. You not only are sinners by nature, along with me, we're sinners by choice. We all sinned in Adam, and we all sin today. We're all to blame. So Adam, instead of leading, he was this lazy leader. Sometimes I think men tend to be lording leaders where they're dominating their wives and their families, and that's not good biblical leadership, dominating and uh, being a dictator. Uh, when I'm working with couples before they get married, I, I, I'll say, guard against being a lazy leader, just letting your wife do everything. That's not what God means. And guard against being a lording leader where you're making all the decisions and you're dominating your wife. Learn how to be like Jesus, be a loving leader. Adam wasn't a loving leader to let his wife. I'm sure in his mind he said, well, it's not going to be my fault. It's going to be her fault. You know, she's doing this. And, of course, he blamed her when, G, when, when God came to him. When we talk about male leadership, we talk about responsibility. And I like what John Stott said. Male leadership is not chauvinism. It's creationism. It's the way God meant for it to be. And we live out these male and female roles so that we can accurately depict for the world what Jesus loving the church looks like, men, by the way we lovingly lead our wives. And wives have the opportunity to show the world what following Christ looks like by the way that she follows her husband. Well, what about God's response in all of this? So what does God do? When you look on in verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now their eyes were opened, already tells us, and they had sewed some fig leaves together. Now when I was looking at the uh, children's bulletin today, I noticed this really wonderful picture of Adam and Eve by Evelyn. Evelyn 7. And so I, I, was, I was trying to decide, well, now, is this picture one with the fig leaves or is this one God makes now from the animal skins? And I, I think it's the fig leaves that she depicted on the children's bulletin on, uh, from last week. But nonetheless, here they're trying to provide for themselves, but they know something's wrong. Not only do they see differently because they see selfishly and sinfully. Sin has entered the world. It's not the same world now, but now they, they experience life differently with God. What they had enjoyed in their fellowship with God now was broken. It's what sin does. It breaks the fellowship with God. Even as believers, some people say, well, I'm saved so my sin doesn't matter now. Well, yes, it does. When you're saved, your sins are forgiven. That's the wonderful thing. You're justified before God. What a wonderful, uh, undeserved, gracious act of God that he would justify us. But then, as we live our lives, 
because we're still inclined towards sin, we live in the flesh, when we do, we still break fellowship. We don't lose the relationship, but we break fellowship. There's conviction and there's guilt. And I call that good guilt when we sin because God's saying, I love you too much to let you keep going down that path. He brings conviction and there's repentance that comes along with that. So this response from God for me is one of patience because, I mean, this holy, perfect God, do you see what Adam and Eve deserve when he comes into the garden? I mean, they deserve guns a-blazing. They, they deserve annihilation. They deserve everything that could possibly be bad here. And God is showing patience because he still desires to give himself. He still desires to share the greatest good with his creation. Didn't catch God off guard what they did. God already had a plan in place. He already knew. And he's just showing his patience here. And he says, where are you? Is that because God didn't know where they were? Of course not. God knows all things. But God wanted them to take responsibility for their sin. So yes, God does know your sin, but God wants you to take ownership of it. I've sinned. I've committed this wrong, God, and I'm, I'm sorry for it. And of course, Adam and Eve were, were hiding. And when asked, I've, I've always liked that, God called to the man... Because in my mind, I've always thought, well, he should have called to the woman. You know, she was the first, right? The sin, she was deceived. So at least call the man and the woman. No, I put you in charge, man. I call, he called the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of, your, of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And you see this interaction and the man actually said, the woman, in verse 12, whom you gave to be, she gave me the fruit and I ate. So God is being patient and God is being kind because as they began to realize their sin and own their sin, even though at first he's blaming her and she blames the serpent, we, we like to do that. We like to blame, I wouldn't have been so mad, but you said this, or I wouldn't have acted like that, but you did this. And our anger and whatever else that comes out of us is not, someone else's fault it's our it's what's in us it's just that that issue uh, exposed what was already inside of us so Adam and Eve they they sinned and they were held accountable and to me that's God's kindness a parent that doesn't discipline his or her kids doesn't love his or her kids Proverbs 13 24 says that if you love your kids you'll discipline them kids if your parents discipline you give you consequences when you misbehave, you should know you, they love you. That's why they take the time to do that. That's why they're teaching and training you. They love you. And God is the same way in this sense. We're just emulating him when we love our kids enough to correct them and to discipline them. God is showing great kindness. He loves us too much to let us just keep killing ourselves and we see that with Adam and Eve and the consequences that he gave them God's kindness with the consequences and 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 you do see to God's redemption here when he's 
giving this curse to the serpent. We, we don't know exactly what the serpent looked like before the consequences. Most people will say somehow the serpent was probably an upright creature, maybe like the other land animals, maybe four legs because of his curse and his consequences. But verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then verse 15, we talk about this normally as being the first mention of the gospel. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. And what we see there is that the serpent will attack the seed of the woman, Jesus himself, singular. But Jesus will crush his head. And he does so on the cross and in the resurrection. God is already at work. He already has a plan to restore his people, even in the midst of one of the worst days that we could ever imagine, the fall of mankind. God's redemptive story is being worked out. And and even when you move down into verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So it wasn't enough to have the fig leaves. That was that was what they were trying to do to cover themselves. What we do for ourselves is never adequate. God sacrificed an animal to provide skins which the first offering and sacrifice without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And even that sacrifice that would become codified in the law, the necessary blood sacrifice would be fulfilled in Christ himself when he would die once for all. What an unbelievable, indescribable response from God. Patience kindness, and redemption. Now, not all people will receive God's kindness. Not all people will receive God's redemption. They will receive the wrath of God because they reject him and continue to go their own way. Now, think about suffering again. Because Chapter 3 now, we have a biblical worldview of sin and of suffering. Adam and Eve chose to go a different way than God's. They brought death, which would be an ongoing experience. Before now, no death would have occurred. That sometimes is is an issue that pushes back on evolution because there had to be a lot of death that happened uh, prior to when sin would have occurred. But death didn't occur after sin occurred. When Adam and Eve sinned, now death enters the picture and all things are moving toward death. When we're born, we're moving toward death. We only have so many years here on earth. And so our years here on earth now, because sin entered in, are tough and hard and we struggle and we suffer. And it all comes back to this. Why do we suffer here on earth? It's the fall. God made a perfect world. Sin entered in. And all things are thrown into chaos. And there's hardship. There's suffering. Even in the consequences to the woman, the pain in childbearing, and the difficulty now in her relationship with her husband. And and the man in his work is going to be by the sweat of his face. and, And ultimately... What was made from the dust will return to dust in physical death as well. 
Is there any other picture of suffering that we would say would be acceptable, that we would buy into other than this biblical worldview? Rebecca McLaughlin wrote a book called Confronting Christianity and deals with 12 of the tough questions that people oftentimes ask. And she thinks through this grid and she says, well, if you don't believe there's a God, you're really saying there's suffering minus God. Since there can't be a God, we're just a product of evolution with no purpose, no meaning. Even in our suffering, it's all just about survival. That doesn't seem to be a good place to want to land with this issue of suffering. How do we explain it? What, what it? What's going on? There are many other approaches. She chooses the Buddhist approach because Buddhism is about detachment from the world and relationships and things so that you can reach an enlightenment place. And if you so detach yourself from the world, maybe you won't feel it as powerfully. And again, that doesn't seem to be a very good solution, does it? I, I like the biblical perspective, a Christian perspective. Suffering is the result of the fall. God proves his love on the cross because he ultimately suffers the greatest. When Jesus dies on the cross, he shows his love for us. And through the process of suffering and difficulty and consequences in this world, God draws us to himself to show us how much we need him so that we can enjoy the greatest good, he himself. And ultimately, he promises that all the suffering will be done. There will be ultimate healing, that one day all accounts will be settled. A day is coming when all evil and suffering will be removed from God's people. I love that worldview. I love singing about it. I love thinking about it. I love, I love knowing that one day I'm going to be with God and the sin that still exists and indwells in me, that indwelling sin will one day be eradicated and gone because I will be totally changed when I see Jesus. I love knowing that one day all the suffering and the tears and all that's around me, one day that's going to be gone because God's going to make it right. He's promised it. Genesis is true, but so is Revelation. Jeremy Camp and Jeremy Thomas wrote a song, and the chorus goes like this. There will be a day with no more tears, no more pain, and no more fears. There will be a day when the burdens of this place will be no more. We'll see Jesus face to face. You can have that eternal promise if you receive the Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. If you have never surrendered your life to Christ, I would love to encourage you to do so today. Our, our altar will be open if you want to come and, and, and pray. And if you want to pray from where you are, you can do the same. If, if you want to surrender your life, we'll have pastors who are available after the service. I'll be in Guest Central. I'd love to talk with you further about what it means to be restored, to have a relationship with God. And then, for those who are already in the family of God, the enemies that work around us, isn't he? He's clever, he's crafty. 
Remember, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But with the temptation, he'll provide a way of escape so that you can stand up under it. God is faithful. He will hold you fast. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for not leaving us in the dark with what happened, what went wrong, why there's suffering, why there's death, why there is sin. But at the same time, I pray that today that you would help each one of us to take responsibility for the fact that we're sinners. Lord, for those who aren't in your family, help them to repent and turn to you today, to place their faith in Jesus' death, his resurrection. And for all of us who do know you, help us to repent, to turn from those things in our lives that are drawing us away from what's really most important and what's really most satisfying, and that's you. Work in this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.